0: Okay, so we've had a couple of weeks off of our Genesis series with Louise's talks on uh, masks and wearing masks and Sarah's talk on fear, but today we are picking up the story again in chapter 18, but just before we do that, um, it's always good to remind ourselves where we got up to in chapter 17, and you might remember that Michael preached a great sermon on the covenant of uh, Abraham and the sign of of the covenant which was circumcision um, and i don't think i've ever heard a sermon on that topic before so good on you mickey for um, tackling that one and he talked about the purpose of the sign the promise of the sign and the danger of the sign and we saw that the purpose of circumcision was that it was a physical reminder of the grace and love that god had shown to abraham and his physical offspring but it also pointed to something spiritual that Jesus would do for Abraham's spiritual offering uh, offspring, and so it was a shadow of something to come. And just as circumcision involved a painful cutting away of an intimate part of the body and it allowing it to die, so in the new covenant that we are part of, Jesus cuts away an intimate part of our spiritual body, our sinful nature, and lets it die. <clears throat> and just as Abraham participated, he had to be willing To participate in the sign of circumcision. So we also need to willingly participate in the spiritual circumcision that Jesus uh, wants to bring about in us. And uh, we are very blessed that the sign of the new covenant is not circumcision, um, but it's baptism. But uh, both signs are reminders to us of God's grace and love to us. And it's not something that we can boast in. Well, you wouldn't have thought so anyway, but somehow humanity manages to do it, don't we? Just as the Pharisees of Jesus, they boasted in their circumcision, not in the goodness and the grace of God. So we can easily place our faith in the outward and physical signs like baptism, tithing and going to church and neglect what they point to, which is inward and spiritual. And Mickey gave us that very helpful analogy of the wedding ring, didn't he? I found that so helpful. Um, it's an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual promise or promises that a husband and wife commit to on their wedding day. But if one of them loses the wedding ring, it's not all over, is it? It doesn't mean that the marriage is all off. In other words, what is inward and spiritual is far more important than the outward and physical sign. And without the inner reality, the outward sign of ritual becomes an empty religious ceremony. And the challenge that Mickey gave to us was, are we trusting in signs and rituals? Or trusting in God? Are we boasting in what we have done or what God has done? So that was such a great message, Mickey. Thank you. And um, encourage everyone to listen to it again. Uh, Remember, all of our talks are available on our website. So now we're in chapter 18. And it's very soon after Abraham was circumcised. It must have been a few months at the most because the scriptures say that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And 100 years old when Isaac was born. And uh, the promise that, uh, so in between those two events, we read of three men who visit him at the start of chapter 18. And they promise uh, Abraham and Sarah that Sarah will have a son in about a year's time, right? So it can't be a great deal of time between the point where Abraham was circumcised and when the three visitors came to him. And it turns out that one of the men was the Lord and the other two were angelic beings. And we pick up the story at the end of the visit as these strange visitors begin to leave. And it's fair to say, uh, once again, this is a passage of scripture that I've never really understood. It's always been such a weird, (laughs) weird thing. It's almost like Abraham and God are involved in some kind of weird Dutch auction of how many righteous people... will take before God wipes out a city and I guess that one of the disconcerting things is from an initial read Abraham looks like he's almost more gracious than God but let's delve into the passage now and see if those initial impressions are correct so um, the passage begins with the men getting up to leave and looking down towards Sodom so they must Abraham must have been uh, on the hill country above the plain of Jordan, which had a view of the city. And then there's an odd paragraph where it appears that the Lord is either talking to himself or perhaps telepathically with his angel companions in such a way that Abraham can't hear. It's a bit like how the old Vulcans in Star Trek communicate. And he asked the question, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? What is he about to do? He's about to judge Sodom. He's about to deal with Sodom. Why would he choose not to tell Abraham? Why, In fact, why would he involve Abraham at all? And uh, maybe cast your mind back to a, to your own life when, when you were about to make a big decision and you were choosing whether or not to involve someone else in that decision. How did you decide to... Uh, uh, and what you know, what thought processes did you go to to whether or not to involve that other person? So in my life, I kind of think, well, is that person trustworthy? Are they wise? Are they empathetic? Um, will they have anything to contribute in terms of helping me to make the right decision? Uh, do I value this person's opinion? So so all the thought processes are around. What are the qualities of the other person and what will they bring to the decision that I'm about to make? But this is not what God does, does he? If we look carefully at verses 18 to 19, God does not look for what Abraham will bring to the table. He just says, for I have chosen him that he so that he will. Okay. So in other words, I've already chosen him. Oh. Uh, hey, Clive and Rowan, are you on, on mute? Sorry. Yeah, hang on. <laughs> okay, good one. Thank you. So he's already someone special to God. Abraham is someone special to God. And because of that, he will be an example for and will teach his children and offspring in the ways of the Lord. So that God will do all that he has promised to do through him, which is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's like God goes through this thought process out loud and basically says, I've already chosen this man. I've already chosen him, um, that, and I'm going to do all these things through him. And all these things sound a lot like the job description of a priest, which uh, whose job it was to do four things. Uh, So firstly, mediate the grace of God. Uh, Secondly, instructing the people in the ways of the Lord. Thirdly, determining the will of God. And fourthly, seeking God's blessing on the people. So effectively, the Lord chooses to involve Abraham in the judging process because he has already chosen him as priest. He's like, I've already chosen him to be priest and this will be his first task. He's going to act as a priest for the city of Sodom. What role does he want Abraham to play? Abraham will be like a mediator, a legal representative arguing for the defense. Why? Why would Abraham be a good man for this job? Well, remember, uh, his nephew Lot and two nieces live in the city, and he loves Lot, obviously. And remember also that uh, Sodom was attacked. Uh, previously, and uh, we, we read in Genesis, and its, and its wealth was carried away. And Abraham set off after the attackers and brought the wealth back. So he's got a strong empathy for Sodom already, and he's an ideal person to do this. But while he's empathetic, he's also humble. He knows that he himself isn't perfect. And he's already failed to uphold the terms of the covenant God made with him, which was to believe that God would be faithful to that covenant and that he would come through for him. And remember, we we looked at the example of uh, when he fathered Ishmael and all the catastrophic consequences that came about that we're still living with today. But he also knows that God has promised to pay for his failure which means that his position in the covenant is not one that he can boast about. Rather, it's only justifiable because of God's grace. He doesn't stand before God bringing his own righteousness to the table. He stands before God on the basis of God's grace, and that takes humility. So we see these two qualities as vital for a priest, empathy and humility. So today we're going to look at this role that Abraham fulfilled as priest on behalf of Sodom and how it points to the perfect high priest, which is Jesus. And because we as the people of God are also priests before the Lord, we'll see what role God is looking for us to play for our family and friends and community. So let's, let's delve into uh, further into this passage. So why was God interested in Sodom in the first place? In verse verses twenty to twenty one, uh, if you can follow along with me, then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now most of us are familiar with the story of Sodom and what happened to it, and if I asked you why did God judge Sodom, what would you say? I would hazard a guess that most of you, like me, would answer that it was because of the sexual perversion of the city. So, you can imagine my surprise and consternation when I looked for all the Bible passages that mention Sodom and came across Ezekiel 16.49. Are you able to look that up? Ezekiel 16.49. And this is what it says. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Nothing about sexual immorality here, which was, I just, I was flabbergasted. And this matches up with a Hebrew word for outcry in verse 20, which is often used in the Old Testament by the poor against the oppressors. They're crying out to God for help and mercy. Now, this doesn't mean to say that the sexual perversion in the city wasn't a problem because Jude 1.7, if you want to look up that as well, Jude 1.7, towards the end of the New Testament. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So, the sexual perversion of the city was an issue but from what we can see here it wasn't the primary issue was it which is quite surprising and that's the reason the reason why god came down in the first place was to investigate the outcry of the poor because they were being oppressed and they were crying out to god for justice so why was this quite unsettling for me it's because the story seems to suggest that the plight of the poor and the needy have a higher priority to God than sexual immorality, which is not the order of priority that I tend to place them in. Now again, don't hear me say that sexual immorality is not important to God. I'm just being challenged that perhaps those on the left of the current political spectrum who place more emphasis on lifting up the poor and the needy might actually be closer to having the priorities right in terms of what the priorities that God places them in, than myself, who's more on the right of the current political spectrum. So I found this quite, quite, <laughs> quite challenging, and it kind of led me to think, well, perhaps we'd do better as the Church of God if we elevated our concern for the poor and the needy and our society higher than what it is now. Um, but I did feel good that we've we've thrown our weight behind uh, the work of Christians against poverty. Um, So that made me feel a little better, (laughs) but not much. (laughs) Now, some people might say, hey, hold on. Uh, I'm sorry, I I just don't believe in a God who judges like this. I believe in a God of love. But as Tim Keller points points out, this story shows that justice and love go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. In other words, would God be a God of love if he ignored the cries of the poor and the oppressed and didn't judge those who were doing the oppressing? Absolutely not. What if God went to see the poor and the oppressed who who were being oppressed by the the city of Sodom and said, hey, look guys, I know you're doing it pretty tough and life isn't that great for you right now, but I really love those guys in Sodom and um, even though they're hating on you, I just can't bring myself to judge them. So... Hey, I'm sure things will get better for you, all the best, see you later. Would we would we call God a God of love if he did that? Absolutely not. That would be an abomination, wouldn't it? So God can't be loving without intervening and judging. They are, they are two sides of the same coin. And this is perhaps something that we tend to forget. So the stage is set. God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And the two angelic beings set off on their way down the hill to see what they find. Now look at what Abraham does. He's not passive. He cares about these people, especially his family. He gets in the face of God, which is exactly what God wants him to do. So Genesis 18, 23 to 25. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous for the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So let's look carefully at what Abraham says here, because as I said before, it's easy for us to, to think that Abraham's being the more gracious one here it's easy to read that last sentence in the passage, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Is Abraham challenging God's goodness? But that cannot be. Why? Because Abraham knows he's talking to the one who made a covenant with him. We had a look at the covenant, remember? Who alone passed through the pieces of the animals in that covenant of blood all those years ago on his own without requiring Abraham to do the same. And in doing so, promising to take Abraham's failure to live up up to the terms of that covenant upon himself. So that's beyond good. That's grace. (coughs) So Abraham can't be challenging God's goodness here. I think he's actually saying, I know you. I know you. You're beyond good. You've shown that to me already. You're unbelievably generous and gracious. I know you wouldn't do such a thing. (coughs) But there's something much deeper going on here, and um, I've never seen this before until Tim Keller pointed it out. In verse 24, there's a note on the word for spare in the NIV translation. So if you look that up, uh, well, on in the online version, it has anyway. There's a little note, and you go down at the bottom of the note, at the page, and read the note, and it says, or forgive, also in verse 26. So in other words, the Hebrew word for spare here can also be translated as forgive. In other words, Abraham is not just asking God to ignore or put up with the sin of the unrighteous people of Sodom on the basis of the righteous. Uh, there. He's, not, he's not asking God to just, oh let's just sweep that underneath the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. He's asking him to forgive them. To consider them righteous. Now that change the dynamics of the, the dialogue between God and Abraham completely, doesn't it, in my mind? It's one thing for God to ignore the unrighteous, the unrighteousness of the many because of the righteous few. It's something completely different for God to forgive the unrighteous many because of the righteous few. In effect, Abraham is beginning a theological exploration of this question with God in this dialogue. Can righteousness be transferred from the righteous to the unrighteous? So that's this big question, right? Can righteousness, being right with God, being in right standing with God, can it be transferred from the righteous to the unrighteous? And we've seen before, earlier on in Genesis, remember, uh, Genesis 15, 6, that righteousness is credited through faith. Abraham believed God. And he credited it to him as righteousness. But where does the credit come from? Right? Money just doesn't appear from, it just doesn't grow on trees. Where does the credit come from? It's all very well to to have the faith, but where where is it credited from? How does God respond to this question? If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare or forgive the whole place for their sake. In other words, yes, righteousness can be transferred. The righteous few can bring about the forgiveness of the unrighteous many. Okay, well, if that's true, then the question becomes, at what point does this principle hold, and what point does it break? And that's why Abraham goes on this seemingly Dutch auction here. In great humility and care, To be fair, he inquires of the Lord, what about 45 righteous people? And God says, yes, for 45, yep. Well, what about 40 or 30 or 20 or 10? God confirms that for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And that's great. But we've got to ask the question, why did Abraham stop at 10? The conversation seems to come to an end and the Lord leaves Abraham and Abraham returns to his tent. But the logical conclusion to this line of questioning is what about one person? Can the righteousness of one person be transferred to the many unrighteous? Why didn't Abraham continue on his line of questioning until he reached the ultimate conclusion? Perhaps I don't know, perhaps he felt he had pushed the boat out as far as it would go and reached the limit of God's grace when he got to 10 people. It's like, surely, if we go below 10, God's going to save, you know. And so Abraham pulled back and he didn't push it anymore. But there's another possibility, though. Abraham knew that even righteous people weren't fully righteous. He just needed to look at himself for that to become apparent. The Lord had appeared to him more than once and had a special relationship with him. But Abraham knew that even with a special relationship, he had failed multiple times. And we've we've covered quite a few of them in our series on Genesis. So he's he's failed even though he's had this special relationship with God in, in the way that he did. If righteousness was like gold, Abraham knew that his gold wasn't very pure. And even if there were nine Abrahams in Sodom, the pile of righteousness was getting pretty small on the scales, trying to balance out the mountain of sin of the many. And if nine Abrahams might not be enough, well, you could forget about one, couldn't you? There's no way that one righteous person could be enough, even if they were the best of humanity, because as, as hard as we try, we're just not pure gold. Our, unrighteousness, our righteousness is not that good. For one person to be sufficient to justify the many, they would have to be morally perfect. And who was perfect? Certainly no one that Abraham knew. Perhaps Abraham faltered at ten and didn't press on to one because he just couldn't envisage any human being having that sufficient righteousness to justify the many unrighteous people. But now we know, of course, that Abraham had not reached the limit of God's grace. One person could indeed bring the forgiveness of God to the unrighteous many. Jesus lived a life of moral perfection. And he was the one perfect sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. His sacrifice was greater than all of the sin he attained for. And that's why God raised him from the dead. So Abraham's role as a priest for Sodom pointed to a far greater priest who was to come. And we read about that priest in Hebrews 414 16 Hebrews four fourteen to 16 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, but yet did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace uh, and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that beautiful? Abraham didn't have the blessing of being able to point to Jesus. And perhaps he ran out of confidence in humanity. But by looking at Jesus' righteousness, we have solid ground to stand on. We know that there was one perfect man. And we can approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. So what does all this mean for us as the people of God living in the 21st century? We know, and we've covered this before, that God has called us to be priests as well. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So God is looking for us to be his royal priesthood. So as we seek to follow in the footsteps of Abraham and our Lord Jesus and live out the calling of a royal priesthood, of the living God, here's a few practical take-home messages for us to think about today. Firstly, can we ask God to elevate our concern for the poor and the needy in our community and give us wisdom to know how to bring practical help as well as the good news of Jesus' love to them? Now, I know that I've had personal experience of being ripped off after trying to help Uh, some poor people and I've kind of, uh, I guess I've kind of been burnt a little by that experience and I've been hesitant but I think this passage has been a real challenge for me that I need to elevate my own concern for the poor and the needy and to really seek God as to how to bring practical help to them as well as the good news of, of the gospel. And above all, perhaps, let's ask God to keep us from the terrible sin of being unconcerned. Remember that passage in Ezekiel. You're unconcerned. It's so easy to be unconcerned in our self-centered, self-centered society, isn't it? And we It's so easy to distract ourselves away from things that we get concerned about. <clears throat> so this leads on to the second point, which is to be concerned about our friends and our family who don't know the Lord yet. Abraham was concerned for his family and friends in the city of Sodom, and he interceded for them, which is exactly what God wanted him to do, remember? God chose to involve him in that process. So let's ask God to give us a greater heart for our friends and our family and community. And My own challenge to myself, and perhaps you want to take this on as well, can can I cut down on my Facebook time and increase my intercessory prayer time? Thirdly God's love is the other side of the same coin as his justice. He can't be a god of love without being a god of justice. And we've had a lot of pushback haven't we uh, as as Christians on this issue. But remember the story of Sodom. God cannot be a god of love if he ignores the cry of the oppressed. <clears throat> so as we seek to to represent God to be priest of God in our society let us continue to resist this false idea that because God is love, he will ignore sin or pretend it doesn't exist. If that were possible, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. So let's ask God to help us to accurately represent who he is, his nature and his character. Fourthly, as priests, if we we look at ourselves for, for justification to be priests of the living God, we'll just, can't. we'll end up cancelling ourselves. There's no way we can look at ourselves and, and place our confidence on what we see in ourselves. as justification to be priest of God. Many times the accuser has pointed me to myself and said, how can you get up and lead worship in church when you've had that thought? How can God bless your ministry when you're such a sinner, when you fail? If he can get me to link my own righteousness with God's favour and blessing on my life, my confidence will quickly fail and I'll just, I'll just falter. I'll pull out, I'll cancel myself. <laughs> but if I can point to Jesus' perfection and say, I can get up and lead because of Jesus, I'm placing my weight on his righteousness, not my own. And if I do that, I'll have a never-ending river of confidence flowing through me because I'm relying on who Jesus is, not because of who I am. And fifthly fifthly and lastly, in these times of heightened fear, anxiety and anger, there seems to be a lot of division and criticism within God's church. I mean, Facebook is full of angry people having a go at each other. And I'm not saying anyone here is doing it, but can I ask us all, as priests representing the living God, not to publicly denigrate other people and especially other Christians, no matter how much we disagree with what they're doing. If we have an issue with someone, Jesus told us to go to them in private, not put our gripe on Facebook. We are all part of the royal priesthood, which is made possible by the righteousness of Jesus our Lord only, and not whether we are right about a particular issue of our time. And our friend Joseph McCauley You might remember he came and and preached for us one Sunday. He recently posted this on Facebook, which I thought was spot on. If you hold your opinion in such a way that it trumps relationship, love and unity as the body of Christ and causes discord, dissensions and factions, well, very likely your opinion has become an ideology and an idolatry. It's quite quite a challenging statement, isn't it? I'll say it again. If you hold your opinion in such a way, that it trumps relationship, love and unity as the body of Christ and causes discord, dissensions and factions, well, very likely your opinion has become an ideology and an idolatry. So let's draw our time to a close and I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, we are not worthy in ourselves. To represent you as priests. When things are going well for us we often get prideful and look down on others and when we fail we often feel unworthy to serve you and condemn ourselves. Lord God may our failures give us an empathy for others and a humility that refuses to look to ourselves and our righteousness but instead relies on your righteousness that you graciously give to us in Jesus. Give us a heart for our family and friends and especially a concern for the poor and the needy in our community. May we share the wonderful news that their forgiveness has already been secured through Jesus and all they need to do is accept it for themselves. Help us to love one another as is fitting for your children and keep us from the path of anxiety, fear and anger. In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Right, hopefully Sarah will be here shortly.